Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Out front next, the breaking news. All eyes on the White House this hour as Biden vows to retaliate after three U.S. soldiers were killed by a drone strike. And tonight we hear from the parents of one of those soldiers. Plus Trump's new target tearing into the president of the United Auto Workers, calling him a weapon of mass destruction and a dope for backing Biden. Tonight, the president of the UAW, Sean Fain, is out front to respond. And inside Kim Jong-un's inner circle, women are elevated there now, and the powerful men who pose a threat to him, especially relatives, are ending up dead. Let's go out front. And a good evening. I'm Erin Burnett. Out front tonight, retaliation. President Biden meeting with his national security team, vowing to respond after three American soldiers were killed by an Iranian-backed drone strike in Jordan. Forty more were injured, and of those, eight are still in the hospital, suffering from their injuries. It is an attack in which we now know three were killed. 46-year-old Sergeant William Rivers, 23-year-old Specialist Brianna Moffitt, and 24-year-old Specialist Kennedy Sanders. In a moment, I'm going to speak to Specialist Sanders' parents. CNN is learning that the three were killed after air defenses failed to recognize the enemy drone, which was honing in on its target, at the same time that an American drone was returning to the small U.S. outpost. It is known as Tower 22 in the north of Jordan, near that Syrian border. It is the deadliest attack on American forces since the withdrawal from Afghanistan in 2021. And it follows months of strikes by the Iranian-backed Houthi militants in the Red Sea, which have targeted American troops and commercial ships. And tonight, the Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, warning of the situation in the region, saying it is now the most dangerous moment in more than 50 years. I would argue that we have not seen a situation as, as dangerous as the one we're facing now across the region since at least 1973, and arguably Uh, even uh, even before that. And arguably even before that. It is an important moment in history here. And on Capitol Hill, the Republicans are leading the charge, demanding Biden respond to this strike with force, major force. Senator John Cornyn stating, quote, target Tehran. Senator Tom Cotton calling for, quote, devastating military retaliation against Iran. Senator Lindsey Graham saying, quote, hit Iran now, hit them hard. It is, of course, certainly not the first time, nor likely the last, that we'll hear Senator Lindsey Graham talk like this. Blow it off the map. Go to Tripoli. Start bombing Gaddafi's inner circle. If we have to go to war to stop this, we will. Those are just a few of examples there of Senator Graham. In those cases, he was talking about Iran, Libya and North Korea, a push to war. And it may be the course the U.S. chooses, but of course it is a major decision. And the question must be asked of whether it is the right one. MJ Lee is out front live at the White House. And MJ, what more are you learning about how and when the U.S. may respond? 
Well, Aaron, we know that President Biden and his national security team, that they are actively discussing options for retaliation. He convened his team yesterday and once again today, you know, even though the U.S. has been responding to these attacks from Iran-backed proxy groups for months now, obviously this weekend marked a real turning point. U.S. officials saying that things are now fundamentally different after the deaths of three U.S. service members. And the decision, Aaron, is so complicated in large part because the White House has been so insistent that they do not want things to further escalate in the region. But at the same time, after Sunday, the president has shown a real desire uh, to respond with real force. Again, because uh, now we have the lives of three U.S. service members that have been lost. And earlier today, when I asked White, White House spokesman John Kirby uh, whether the president is actively considering striking inside Iran, this is the complicated answer that he gave. We are not looking for a war with Iran. We're not looking to escalate here. This attack over the weekend was escalatory. Make no mistake about it. And it requires a response. Make no mistake about that. And since Sunday, of course, we have continued to learn more about the details surrounding the attack. But there are still uh, many outstanding questions, including whether Iran was directly involved in directing this attack or whether this was largely the responsibility of a proxy group uh, working on their own and exactly which group was responsible. Uh, but for President Biden, Aaron, all of this is obviously entangled in the growing calls for a ceasefire, which has uh, put a lot of political pressure on him, as well as uh, the ongoing hostage negotiations, which uh, again for the White House remains a top priority because remember there are still uh, six American hostages that remain unaccounted for in Gaza as well. Aaron. All right, MJ, thank you very much from the White House tonight. And out front now, Oneida Oliver Sanders and Sean Sanders, their daughter, U.S. Army Specialist Kennedy Sanders, was one of the soldiers killed in that attack on the U.S. military outpost in Jordan. And Oneida, um, Sean, I'm so terribly sorry for, for your loss, incomprehensible for uh, parents to understand what you are now going through. Anita, how did you even learn about what happened to Kennedy? Um, two uniformed officers um, made a personal visit to our home to let us know that she was deceased. John, you served in the Marines, of course, so these two uniformed officers that Anita is talking about, they come to your home yesterday. I know you were there. Um, I, I saw it reported actually that Oneida uh, was not there. You waited 20 minutes because you wanted her to come home. You wanted to wait for her. Um, and you've got these, these two soldiers there waiting. What were those 20 minutes even like, Sean? The longest 20 minutes um, I faced in my life. Um, when I opened the door, I initially knew what was going on. Oneida, when you got the call from Sean, did you know, too, in those 20 minutes that you're rushing home? No, um, he didn't tell me what was going on. He just, you know, said, come home, come straight home. And I could hear panic in his voice. And I asked, you know, was there anything wrong? And he confirmed that, yes something is wrong, but he never told me what it was. So, um, you know, like any mother, I immediately started calling all of my children. I FaceTimed, tried to FaceTime Kennedy twice, um, tried to text her and call her, of course, with no answer. But when I got home and saw the officers, I too was fully aware of what had happened. Mm. I'm 
so sorry, Anita. I know that you said you tried to FaceTime her twice because <clears throat> you did speak to her every day. I mean, you were so close to your child. Um, I know you, you sent us a screenshot of a FaceTime conversation you had on the, on the Friday, just this past Friday, yeah. uh, and you mm -hmm. spoke to her hours before the attack even happened. I mean, I don't know if, if, if you remember every word of that or if you struggle to now. Uh, what was that conversation like that you now know was your last? Well, um, actually, I was in Atlanta with um, some friends. We had just gone to an Alvin Ailey um, show in Atlanta, the 65th anniversary. And she called us um, while we were at brunch with her friends in the background to tell me that she was going against my wishes to purchase a motorcycle. And I told her, she knows I was against, and I told her that she was strictly prohibited from purchasing a motorcycle. And she just said, prohibited? You know, you know as if to say, you know, I'm 24 years old. <laughs> so that, that was our last conversation then. But right before that, she sent me a, a text message with a picture of a lanyard that she had crocheted. I didn't know exactly what it was. She just sent me the picture. And I said, well, what is it? She said, a lanyard. And I said, did you make it? She said, yes. And that was it on that conversation. But yes, our last conversation that I actually talked to her <clears throat> was her planning to purchase a motorcycle. Mm. And saying what a, what a mother would say, uh, no, absolutely not. Um, Sean, what would you want people to know? Um, you know, they're looking at your beautiful daughter that was everything to you and, and your children. What do you want us to know about her? She's now died in service to her country. It's pretty much remember her service and the commitment and the sacrifice she made for the country. Oneida, there, there are some demanding President Biden, you know, strike back hard at Iran to, to avenge um, this terrible loss, the death of your daughter, the two other soldiers who were killed, the eight others still suffering in the hospital. Is there anything specific that you want to see done in response? Um, you know, whatever is decided will not ease our pain at any level. Um, Kennedy still has battle buddies who are still left there. And I know if it was her decision, she would definitely be very concerned about their safety. Um, so, you know, whatever happens won't change our situation at all. Um, Sean, have you have you had a chance to speak to President Biden at this point? Has, has he reached out to you and Oneida? I'm not yet, but it's something um, scheduled. Um, it will either be the president or the secretary of state. Secretary of defense. Or the secretary of defense. Um, have you thought about what you want to say on that call? No. Um, really, um, we've received several calls from um, congressmen, um, other people in, in government. And basically, everybody's just calling to offer their condolences um, and to, you know, tell us that they honor Kennedy as a, you know, a hero. So, no, I'm not really expecting to, to really say or request anything when he does call. I'm just expecting to hear him offer his condolences. And, Anita, I want to ask you, Sean said he wants everyone to remember Kennedy for her service. 
um, that she did die serving her country. When you were talking about her a moment ago, you talked about how she crocheted her own lanyard and wanted to ride a motorcycle. <laughs> and it just gives the yeah. impression of a very uh, strong-minded, uh, enthusiastic, uh, curious, young soul. What else do you want yeah. us to know, the world to know about your daughter? Well, she was a, a, definitely a free spirit. She was, um, her personality was contagious. Everyone who's come in contact with her say the same things about her. Her smile is contagious. She was always laughing about everything. Um, so I just want people to remember that, you know, even though her time was short on earth, she lived her life to the fullest and she enjoyed her life in any situation that she was in. She made it enjoyable, even being deployed. She found different things to do to um, pass her time. She was trying to learn a new language. She, of course, was crocheting. She was taking jujitsu at some point. She joined a run club. She joined a football team. So any situation that Kennedy is in, she's going to take full advantage of it and enjoy it. Well, we are all so grateful for her and what, what she's done and, and to you for being able to even come on and, and share a little bit about uh, someone who meant the world and your life to you. Thank you both so much. Thank you. <clears throat> Evelyn Farkas is with me now, the former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense and the Executive Director at the McCain Institute. And Evelyn, they haven't yet had the call from the President of the United States, or as they say, it could also be from the Secretary of Defense. They will get that call. Um, they, of course, bring home what this is all about and what a president decision is being made in this moment, right? When you've got the senators pounding the table and attack and bomb, ultimately this comes down to human lives and the incalculable loss of a life like Kennedy's. So what should the United States response be? The president's sitting there talking to them, talking to the parents of the others who have lost their lives or to, the, to their children uh, and well, making this choice. Yeah. Yeah, Aaron, I think um, Kennedy's mom, I mean, first of all, that was incredibly moving. Like, what a beautiful person she was. And I'm trying really hard not to cry. Um, not, to, not totally successfully, but I don't want to cry on the air here. Um, you know, but the, Kennedy's mother was correct. Look, nothing that we can do now will bring her daughter back. But what her daughter would care about and what every service member and every American should care about is making sure that we deter and prevent further attacks. Um, I know earlier you guys had... Um, General McKenzie on talking about the fact that there will be lessons learned. The military won't make this mistake, but we have to stop it at the source. And so I think we do have to take some punitive action and it has to be strong enough, uh, you know, proportionate that the, the Iranian proxies, whoever's responsible, doesn't do this again. I am not for bombing Iran, though, um, because I think it takes the eye off the prize. The most important thing right now, the context for all this, is the fact that Secretary Blinken and, um, and Director Burns were, are in the middle of trying to broker a hostage release, 100 hostages for a ceasefire. Temporary, yes, but something that put, brings us in the direction of actually freezing this part of the, of the conflict in Gaza. Ultimately, we have to move to a diplomatic solution. We can't have an ongoing war here because the biggest threat to the international order is the one that 
is, is Ukraine. And this is distracting us from that and benefiting Putin and, and the Iranians, the North Koreans, etc. And uh, the reality, of course, is Blinken even talking about the region itself, right? In the Middle East and that, you know, obviously related to Ukraine in many ways, but still separate, right? So you're saying the Middle East is as dangerous as it's been in at least 50 years, if not yes. more. I mean, that's an incredible thing to say and an incredible shift in how one would have made this analysis on October 6th. So could we truly be looking at a major war as the United States right now? Is that risk if we're, Yeah, if we're not careful, we can, Aaron. And I think that Secretary Blinken is correct. I mean, we this is the most dangerous situation the United States has been in for a very long time, as, as long as I can remember in the Middle East. But it's because, precisely because, the same actors are involved as the ones that are active in Ukraine. So again, Russia, Iran, North Korea. Don't forget, Iran and North Korea are providing weapons to Russia. China is benefiting as well, and China is causing problems for us in the South China Sea as we speak. They're also trying to break the, the U.S. Um, you know, power that we exercise in that region and elsewhere. So these actors are working together, which makes this one situation in the, in the Middle East even more dangerous. Plus, of course, I don't have to remind you that Iran is on the brink of having a nuclear weapon. North Korea is threatening, also making very threatening noises. And they, have nu- they are a nuclear weapon state for all intents and purposes. All right, Evelyn, thank you very much. And sobering thank analysis. You. And we do have a special report on North Korea coming up later this hour. And next, a quote, weapon of mass destruction. We're talking in this case about a person, an insult that Trump is hurling at the president of the United Auto Workers Union after he endorsed Biden. Sean Fain, the president of the UAW, he'll respond next. Plus, Trump leading the charge to blow up a bipartisan border bill, saying he doesn't want a bill, which is ironic because when he was president, he begged repeatedly for one, you'll see. And under fire, we're going to take you to the front lines in Ukraine, where Fred Plykin and his team suddenly found themselves under attack in this report. Go! This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. New tonight, Trump's latest target, the president of the United Auto Workers, the target of two verbal assaults within hours of each other from the former president. Trump posting today in part, quote, Sean Fain is a weapon of mass destruction on auto workers and the automobile manufacturing industry in the United States. All auto workers should all caps vote for Trump. Just hours earlier, Trump bashed Fain by saying this. He's a real all caps stiff who is selling the automobile industry right into the big, powerful hands of China. Get rid of this dope and vote for DJT. 
Trump admitting his initial attack was because of this interview where Fain did not hold back in explaining why he has chosen to endorse Biden instead of Trump. Donald Trump has a history of serving himself and standing for the billionaire class, and that's contrary to everything that working class people stand for. Sean Fain is out front now. So, Sean, Donald Trump says you are a weapon of mass destruction, that you are a stiff, and that you are a dope, said all those uh, things today. What do you even, (laughs) how do you even respond to that? Well, thanks for having me, Aaron. You know, first off, you know, the weapon of mass destruction against the automotive industry has been two words, (laughs) corporate greed. Uh, You know, this is Trump. Trump always resorts to name calling because the facts are very clear and he doesn't want to talk about the truth. You know, he talks about what, during his presidency, the phrase came out, alternative facts, or what we all call lies. Um, he wants to make this election about anything but real issues. And, you know, this isn't about me or Donald Trump. I, I don't care what Donald Trump says about me. I don't care what he thinks about me. I care about facts. And, and the facts are very clear for the large majority of Americans. The working class people have been left behind by Trump's billionaire class, by the billionaire buddies, and the economy that only works for the for the wealthy. And, you know, you look, 1970, I read this the other day from the Economic Policy Institute. Yep. From 1979 to 2022, the top 0.1% of wage earners, wages increased 344%. The bottom 90% increased 32%. So this is an economy that Trump dreams of. This is what he wants. He doesn't give a damn about working class people. And that's what this is all about. All right. So one thing that he is connecting with in some way uh, is is a sentiment that at least has grown within unionized households. Right. And that is a shift over time politically. Um, You know, you've admitted this yourself, Sean. You said there are rank and file members of the UAW that Trump does appeal to. Uh, Our Harry Anton was looking at some numbers. And what I'm referring to is is a shift over time in overall union member vote towards the Republican, right? Still still plus Democrat, okay? But there's been a shift, right, Sean? Mm-hmm. So in 1948, it was 62 points, uh, plus 62 Democrat. 1992, that had been cut in half to 31. And by 2020, it was down to 22% uh, advantage for Democrats. Still an advantage, but that's obviously a massive erosion. Um, why do you think it is that that many of your members do not see this the way that you do? Well, look, I'll say this is a it's been a masterful plan by the by the billionaire class and the corporate class. I mean, they over the last 40, 50 years of our lives have played the greatest game they always play. And that's divide and conquer. They divide the masses over single issues. And meanwhile, they run away with all the money, all the profits and uh, things get worse for us. You know what we have to do as organized labor, we have to lead the fight. And we have to lead the dialogue with facts. And that's why our contract campaign was so so successful with the big three. That's why 75% of Americans sided with us in that fight, because we were focused on on the things that matter most to working class people, wages, better wages, uh, you know, retirement security, health care, better health care for everybody and getting our time back. You know, it's shameful through all of this. You know, working class people are working harder and longer than we ever have. They're working seven days a week, 12 hours a day, working multiple jobs, and they're scraping to get by. That's the economy Donald Trump loves. That's the economy that the billionaire class loves, and it doesn't work for working class people. And I think when we focus on the core issues that matter most to working class people, 
we'll see a difference in how the election goes. So, Sean, I know that um, you did not, uh, you had ruled out meeting with Trump, but the Teamsters Union is not doing that. They've got 1.3 million members, right? Massive union. Trump is meeting with union members and leaders this week. There's a, a, a event he's hosting on Wednesday. Earlier this month, he met with the head of the Teamsters Union at Mar-a-Lago. Do you have any feel for how this is going? Do you know the head of the Teamsters Union? Do you think that he could be getting their endorsement? Look, I've talked to Sean O'Brien. I respect Sean O'Brien. He's a, he's a good leader. And, and look, they've had good success in that union, done great things. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to try to even speak for what their decision is. All I can speak for is from, from our perspective and what we've seen and the facts we've seen. And it's really clear for us. It's a very clear picture when you put the two candidates side by side. I mean, you go back to the economic recession. Joe Biden stood with the, the American worker. Donald Trump blamed the American worker. He blamed the workers for everything that was wrong with the big three back then. You know, Joe Biden gave us a path forward. You know, you go to when Trump was president in 2019, Lordstown Assembly Plan in Ohio was slated to close. Trump blamed the local president, told people don't sell your houses and did nothing. In, in 2019, when GM was on strike, what did Donald Trump then the president say? He didn't say anything. He didn't do anything. You know, in 2023, Joe Biden, when we were on strike, he came out and stood with the workers. He joined us on the picket line. You know, Belvedere Assembly Plant in Illinois yep. was slated for closure in 2023. The community was written off for dead. Joe Biden worked with us to not just get one plant. We got that plant revived and another plant to be built there and, and, and save the community. So there's a, there's a stark contrast in these candidates. Joe Biden has spent a lifetime serving others and serving the working class. Donald okay. Trump spent a lifetime serving himself. All right, Sean, thank you very much. I appreciate your time. Sean Fain is the head of the thank UAW. You. And next, dramatic video capturing the moment that our Fred Plaikin and his team came under Russian fire while trying to report and show everyone what's really happening along the front lines in Ukraine. We were getting ready to film here, and then all of a sudden we heard what appeared to be outgoing artillery, but then a shell came in. 100 meters, got gotcha. Plus, does Trump have a cash problem? The self-proclaimed billionaire could soon be on the hook for nearly $500 million. Will that hurt Trump's bottom line? A Bloomberg reporter who's doing the math is out front next. Sabotage. Former President Trump obsessed with killing what could be one of the strictest immigration bills of the century, a bill that President Biden is ready to sign. But today, Trump is claiming a bill is no longer needed. He posted on social media, quote, the Democrats broke the border, all caps, they should fix it, all caps again, no legislation is needed. This is a very interesting turn of events because when Trump was president, he really wanted an immigration bill to fix the problem. I would love to see a big immigration bill. We should be able to make an immigration bill that can really solve the problem. Okay, Trump said those words in 2018 and 2019. He did not think that he could close the border via executive order at that time. In fact, he only did that during COVID. He needed a bill, just like Joe Biden needs a bill. And the situation is dire. I mean, obviously, there's, there's no reason to cloak that at all. James Clapper, the former director of national security under Obama, told me that this is a national security crisis. And now, Trump put it this way. This weekend, he said that, quote, criminals, rapists, murderers, terrorists are coming over the border. And then he added, quote, terrorists are pouring in. Okay. In fact, Trump said this about the influx of immigrants. 
There's a 100% chance that there will be a major terrorist attack in the United States. A 100% chance that there'll be a major terrorist attack because of what's going on on the southern border. If that is the case, and Trump cares about the country, he would want a deal immediately. At least it would seem that way, right? But he doesn't. He doesn't want a deal at all. On Thursday, Trump posted, quote, a border deal now would be another gift to the radical left Democrats. And even as House Republicans scrambled to get in line behind him on this contradictory history, some Republicans in the Senate are standing up. They are livid at Trump and they are livid at his enablers in the GOP. This is not about Trump. This is about security for our own country. The fact that he would communicate to uh, Republican senators and congresspeople that he doesn't want us to solve the border problem because he wants to blame uh, Biden for it is uh, is really appalling. When we're finally getting to the end, they're like, oh, just kidding. I actually don't want to change in law because it's a presidential election year. Uh, Senator Lankford calling it out like he sees it. And you have to admire that. Out front now, Republican governor of New Hampshire, Chris Sununu, he's endorsed Nikki Haley for president. All right, governor. So let me um, just, just start here. <laughs> Do you understand the logic of saying there's a 100% chance of terror attacks because of the southern border situation, and then also saying do not pass a bill that serious conservative Republican senators have worked on in support because it's an election year? No. Well, uh, look, it's, it's Donald Trump, right? He's going to say whatever is in his political interest in the moment. But under, there's a couple of key points that are, I don't, I think, can't be overlooked. Number one, Joe Biden does have the authority to enact policies to stem the tide that has been coming over the border, right? I mean, there's a reason why we've gone from a couple million crossings a year to like 8 million crossings a year. This just outrageous numbers. So there's certain policies that can and should be enacted. Biden has the power to do it. He can't act like he needs this bill to do something on the border. Um, I, well, I think the frustration that you have and I have as well is you have both sides kind of pointing at each other, um, using politics to um, explain why they want to do nothing, right? No, no, and nobody wants to see that. Um, I think I, I would support this bill. I think it's a good step. It's not the end all be all. Uh, every little bit counts. The border security is our number one security issue, but there's no reason you can't secure the border, fund Ukraine, fund, you know, support Israel, make sure that we're pushing back on terrorism in the Middle East. You can do all that for right. a fraction, a fraction of just one year's uh, defense budget. So it's all possible. True. It's just the political will to do it. And, and, and neither side really seems to have that right now. Right. And under understand all the points you're making. I guess I'm just honing in on, and I, it, and I know you scratch your head at this all the time, but do you think that there's anybody in, in, his, in his base or in the people who are enabling him in the House who find it incongruous that someone would say criminals, rapists, murderers, terrorists are coming in over the border, terrorists are pouring in over the border, and then also, and there's a 100% chance that there will be a, a major terrorist attack in the United States, and then say a border deal now would be a gift to the radical left Democrats? That's that's yeah, where I mean, it's, it's does that politics. break through you're, to anybody? You're right, I get it. Yeah, it's just politics. No, no, because look, uh, look at the polls uh, right after the first in the nation primary right here in New Hampshire. The number one issue of folks coming out of the ballot box on Tuesday was the border. Uh, yep. Up here in New Hampshire, border security is the number one issue. It's the number one issue for folks all across this country. So um, I think the big frustration is do something, do anything. Hey, Washington, D.C., you've built this massive reputation on being completely inept. Now you actually have the ability to do something. Don't let us down now. Don't let politics get in the way. Both sides.
take some responsibility. Don't let politics get in the way. Secure the border and, and let's start actually moving forward. It's not, there's not just one law that's going to solve this whole thing. It's not going to happen overnight. But let's start taking steps. And let's show the American people that you're yeah. putting a priority and, on, on our number one security issue. And, Governor, you said we can do that and we can deal with the Middle East and we can deal with Ukraine at the same time. And we can. Um, we have a special report actually coming yeah. up in a moment uh, from the front lines of Ukraine. Um, and as, but the, the reason, obviously, this is so central to this conversation is it's now been tied to the border funding in Congress. You wrote in the Washington Post an op-ed uh, in March that uh, has, has resonated with me. You said to abandon Ukraine would set off a negative chain of events for U.S. interests domestically and abroad. You continued to say some in the Republican Party have lost their moral compass on foreign policy. In fact, some of those who are pounding the table now saying to bomb Iran are, are saying uh, that, 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 they, that we don't need Ukraine funding. What do you say to them now? Yeah, consistency is everything. Look, you, you can't just... You can't just be where you want to be in the moment for political reasons. Um, people are smart in America. They see right through that kind of nonsense. And Washington has this terrible habit on both sides for years of doing this. So at a minimum, be consistent. Be true to your principles. And if you don't want to provide funding and, and you want to be a nationalist and, and just, you know, protect our borders and that's it and call it a day, I disagree with that vehemently. But if that's where you are, then let us know where you are. But I do believe, and I think most people understand, that, we're, you know, uh, world peace through America's strength. And you have to protect. Protect your allies. You have to make sure that your enemies know that you're going to stand resolved and go against them. That's what this is all about, American resolve. All right. Thank you very much, Governor Sununu. I always appreciate seeing you, and thank you. You bet. Well, the hold on U.S. Thank funding you. in Ukraine is empowering Vladimir Putin. Today, in fact, Putin formally announced he's running for re-election this spring. Now, his victory at the ballot box is, of course, a foregone conclusion. But on the front lines in Ukraine, his victory may truly depend on something the United States controls, and that is weapons and military aid. Fred Pleiken is there and filed this report for Outfront. All-out warfare in unforgiving terrain. Forest battles in eastern Ukraine mean facing a near-constant Russian onslaught. Vladimir Putin's army trying to break through Ukrainian defenses. Dimitro is one of those holding them up. The situation is very active and very tense, he says, because the enemy has much more equipment and manpower. Basically, every day they try to storm the positions. A dead Russian soldier and a destroyed tank show just how close the Russians have come. It's a fight for survival and against the elements. The trench, cold, wet and soggy, the only heat coming from candles the soldiers cower around, gathering strength to face overwhelming Russian firepower. They shoot direct fire. Planes are flying. Basically, they have it all, he says. But probably the worst are tanks. When they fire, you don't even hear it. You hear an airplane when it comes over. With a tank, you're in God's hands. Artillery fire, another threat here, as we found out when we came under fire trying to make it to the area. Go! And this is unfortunately something that, when we work here in the east of the country, happens all too often. We were getting ready to film here, and then all of a sudden we heard what appeared to be outgoing artillery, but then a shell came in. 100 meters, guys. 100 meters. 100 meters, gotcha. 
We're now trying to make our way out of here as safe as possible. That means we have to keep distance between our cars, but we also, of course, have to keep moving the entire time to make sure that we can get out of here, hopefully safely. We believe a Russian drone spotted us and directed the artillery fire. But two can play that game. Naziri is a Ukrainian drone pilot. He guides Kiev's artillery guns, targeting Russian infantry, but also armored assault formations, including main battle tanks. He says ammo shortages mean he has to be extremely precise. It's no secret we're starved of artillery shells, he says. We try to work as efficiently and accurately as possible to hit the enemy's firepower. Trying to fight back any way they can on one of the toughest battlefields of this war. And once again there, Aaron, you see those ammo shortage really hampering the Ukrainians as they try to defend their positions. Nevertheless, they tell us right now they are holding the lines there and they're inflicting catastrophic losses on the Russians. One unit told us that in the span of just a couple of days, they believe that they destroyed more than 40 tanks and armored vehicles from the advancing Russians. Aaron. All right. Thank you very much, uh, Fred Plaikin in Kiev after uh, coming under fire. And we're glad you are safe, Fred, you and your entire team. Next, on the heels of an $88 million penalty, Trump could be ordered to pay another $370 million. We'll tell you why and what it actually means. What does it mean to his bottom line? Plus, North Korea's most powerful man surrounding himself with women, and we'll explain why it's not what you may be thinking. The powerful men in his family, meantime, are ending up killed. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Tonight, Trump's cash crunch. So the former president, as you know, right, owes $88 million to E. Jean Carroll for defamation. But he also could be ordered to pay another $370 million over the next few days. That's how much the New York Attorney General, Letitia James, is seeking in damages in the Trump org fraud trial. That trial, in addition to the uh, $370 million, could also block Trump from ever doing business in New York again. So the total... Basic math here, $460 million Trump may have to uh, pay in these cases. Obviously, that is a, a massive amount of money. Some, Even someone who's talked a big deal about his cash on hand, it's a lot to him. We have a lot of cash. I believe we have uh, substantially in excess of 400 million cash, which is a lot for a developer. Developers usually don't have cash. They have assets, not cash. But we have... I believe 400 plus and, and going up very substantially every month. 400 plus and going up very substantially month over month. The problem is, of course, if he were to say he doesn't have the money now, then that becomes a lie. And well, you understand the mess that he would then be in. Out front now, Eric Larson, he's been covering the Trump fraud trial, been in there, of course, and also the E. Jean Carroll case for Bloomberg. And Eric, of course, you've covered Trump's businesses for nearly a decade. So I just am trying to understand this. Everyone wants to understand. So $460 million, obviously, it's an incredibly huge amount of money. Uh, Trump's finances have, have been in fate. Uh, <laughs> Opaque. I didn't mean fake. <laughs> right. uh, opaque and inflated as well, right? As right. he, you know, would do that to be on lists, whether it's Bloomberg billionaires or Correct. Forbes or whatever it is. So 
How much does it hurt him if he has to pay $460 million? Well, a, a lot. But the truth is, is he, he actually is worth about $3.1 billion. Um, so he's been accused of inflating his net worth for, for years. That's the main thrust of the attorney general's case. But regardless, he, he actually does have a lot of assets. A lot of them are performing pretty well. And he's worth about $3.1 billion. And that would include about $600 million in liquid assets. And as you saw in that deposition, he said he has more than $400 million in cash on hand. But it's also true that he faces potentially, in the space of less than a week, uh, $450 million plus in damages from these two lawsuits, the E. Jean Carroll case and this attorney general verdict, which is expected at, at any time. Right. And obviously, I just did the quick math. So it's 15% of what you're valuing him at. Right. And just to be clear, as, he's, as he himself has um, admitted, right, it's, um, it's not liquid. Right. So of his liquid assets, it's uh, what, more 80, 85 percent if you're if you're right about right. 600 million um, now. But in terms of his overall value, uh, look, the real estate obviously has improved since yeah. uh, the, the peak of the, the covid crisis, even though some of his properties, commercial properties in big metro areas like New York are still hurting. They're hurting a lot less, a lot less than they were. So you have some averages here. Um, 1290 Avenue of America is now worth half a billion dollars, according to your analysis. The Doral in Florida, 305 million. 40 Wall Street, uh, which has been at the center of all, this entire um, case that's that's now at stake, 270 million, according to your analysis. Mar-a-Lago itself, uh, nearly a quarter billion dollars. So um, these, if you add up just the improvement on these properties of their assessed values. Uh, since the the peak of the COVID crisis, it's it's significant. Yeah. I mean, we I should say this was a Bloomberg billionaire's uh, estimate. It's a whole team of people who looked into his his assets to to point out that since the time that this lawsuit was filed, his assets has actually gone up about five hundred million dollars, uh, which is pretty significant. He was about at about two point five before, and now at three point one. So it was interesting timing for this change to come about at just the time that he was being accused of inflating his assets. Um, it doesn't mean that he wasn't. In fact, the judge in that case has already held him liable for fraud exactly right. for that. Uh, but in terms of whether he has money to pay for these damages if necessary, it would seem that he does. But he would have a lot less cash than he says he has now. Oh, that's for sure. Uh, but it is pretty incredible. You look at it, just a massive amount of money that it is, that it hits him like it does. But the fact is that he actually could, uh, despite all the inflation, the opacity, he could... He can pay it. All right, Eric, thank you very much. Thank you. And next, we're going to take you inside the secretive world of North Korea's Kim Jong-un, a world where his sister and his daughter are now elevated to high positions, while the men, like his uncle and brother, are killed. Plus, is this image Amelia Earhart's missing plane? Tonight, the U.S. on high alert for signs of lethal military action from Kim Jong-un. This is the erratic North Korean leader says he successfully launched a second cruise missile from a submarine in less than a week. Kim personally oversaw the missile launch, as he always does. But he's often surrounded by the women in his inner circle. You see him here at a ballistic missile launch in April. There's his sister by his side, his wife, and his daughter, who is widely believed to be his successor at another ballistic missile launch just last month. Will Ripley is out front. North Korea's most powerful man, making an emotional appeal to women. Kim Jong-un, wiping away tears, urging moms to have more babies to boost the plunging birth rate. Pyongyang's patriarchy persists, observers say, but things may be changing in Kim's Korea. The North Korean leader bringing powerful women into his orbit. Foreign Minister Chae Son-hee, who recently met with Russian President Vladimir Putin, 
Kim's younger sister, Kim Yo-jong, a close aide and trusted confidant, famous for fiery speeches. And this dramatic demolition of the inter-Korean liaison office, the younger Kim's meteoric rise, likely fueled by her close brotherly bond and powerful Kim family bloodline. The family photo that shook the world, the supreme leader revealing his daughter, believed to be Kim Jue, at a missile launch in late 2022. The first in a series of carefully staged father-daughter photo ops, elevating the profile of Kim's elementary-aged child, raising questions about succession. Kim Jong-un is saying by appearing in public with his daughter, my nukes are here to stay and my power will be handed down to my progeny or maybe somebody else, his sibling. For three generations, the men of the Kim family ruling North Korea with an iron fist. Now many wonder, could a woman be next in line? Could Kim be grooming his own daughter to someday take command of North Korea's growing nuclear arsenal? The power will be kept. This absolute power will maintain, will be maintained in the family. A family where the women seem to be faring better than the men. Kim's own uncle, Jang Song Tech, seen half-heartedly clapping when Kim came to power. South Korean lawmakers said he was executed by anti-aircraft guns and possibly decapitated, former President Trump claimed. Kim's exiled older half-brother, Kim Jong-nam, assassinated by poison at a Malaysia airport. Whoever the next North Korean leader is, man or woman, Kim's top priority analysts say protecting his family's fortune and power. And tonight, historians on both sides of the political spectrum believe that North Korea is essentially the most perfected totalitarian state in our history. They have a model, a police state, propaganda, total control of the population through surveillance, information, isolation, and Aaron, it is a recipe for success for the next North Korean leader, whether they are a man or a woman. Hmm. Amazing. All right. Will Ripley, thank you very much from Taipei tonight. And next, has Amelia Earhart's long lost plane actually been found? Is this Amelia Earhart's long lost plane? So if you look at your screen, you're, you're seeing what an exploratory team from South Carolina believes uh, is the plane Earhart was flying when she went missing over the Pacific Ocean in 1937. The discovery was made after a high-tech unmanned underwater drone surveyed more than 5,200 square miles of the ocean floor. The former U.S. Air Force intelligence officer who funded the $11 million search Telling the Wall Street Journal the aircraft-shaped object was found less than 100 miles from Howland Island, which, of course, is where Earhart was supposed to stop and refuel. Thanks so much for joining us. AC360 starts now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.